Hello, this is Carlos Pasquale, and welcome to this Sierra Week conversation. Today, we have a tremendous opportunity to have a discussion with Elizabeth Rosenberg, the Assistant Secretary of Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crimes, and Ben Harris, the Assistant Secretary for Economic Policy and Counselor to the Secretary of the Treasury. The discussion comes at a tragic moment in the international community. With the war on Ukraine, it sparked great questions about what has to happen with Russian exports to the world, the revenues that go back to Russia, the potential for their, those revenues to continue to finance the war. As a result of that, the G7 announced on September 2nd that it would pursue a price cap on Russian oil. And what we want to understand is what does that mean? The conversation will focus on why, what some of the mechanisms are and how it would work, and what are the challenges. And Ben, Liz, thanks very much for joining us in this conversation and for jumping in this discussion with us together. Uh, ben, I wanna begin with you. Um, we've laid out the historic moment that we're facing right now, but one of the things that's gonna be important in understanding the price cap is understanding exactly what, what is the problem that's being addressed. Can you lay that out for us? Sure, and let me just start by expressing sincere gratitude for the opportunity uh, to speak about the price cap today. Uh, I think it's obviously, as you, as you noted, this is a historic moment. Um, and it's really important that, that everyone involved in, in these markets understand precisely what we're trying to do. And as you said, the problem we're trying to solve. Uh, so I think that the price cap can best be understood in the context of uh, the EU's six sanctions package, which is slated to go into effect December 5th. The package does two fundamental things. The first is, is that it gradually phases out uh, European imports of Russian oil, really for seaborne oil. Uh, and so you have an effective embargo on seaborne, on the imports of seaborne oil um, uh, from Russia. But more importantly, what the six sanctions package does is it bans the use of Western services in the transport of Russian oil. So for example, if you had trade from say, Russia uh, to Asia using Western services, that would be disallowed under the six sanctions package. Um, you know, our, our view was in examining the impact of the six sanctions package was it could potentially shut in substantial Russian oil, which on its face might seem terrific. Um, and it, you know, could very well reduce Russian revenue. The concern would be that by shutting in such large amounts of, of Russian oil, uh, you would see an increase in the price of global energy prices, which would mitigate the decline in revenues and would ultimately punish uh, really any consumer of oil, particularly those in low and middle income countries that are struggling under the, the weight of higher energy prices. So the, the price cap uh, is a complement to the six sanctions package, but what it's designed to do is to allow the flow of Russian oil, but at reduced prices, which means it's reduced revenue to Russia. So that's really the problem it's designed to solve, which is the potential for uh, shut-in production. Ben, so if you would translate that into a year from now, what would you hope to have seen happen? What would success be? What would success look like? So we, we have two fundamental goals here. And I want to be crystal clear about the first, because it's really important that I think folks understand what we're trying to do. The first goal is to maintain 
the flow of Russian oil onto global, global markets. This is different than other sanctions regimes that prevent the trade or designed to prevent the trade of a certain product. This is designed to encourage the trade of Russian oil. So a year from now, if we look back and we see that there's been substantial shut-in, um, you know, I think that we would feel uh, that's not the optimal outcome. The second thing that the price cap is designed to do is to reduce Russian revenues. And conditional on the first, where we wanna preserve the flow of Russian oil, the only real option here is to, to lower, lower the price at which oil is traded. Um, and that's the essence of, of the price cap, which is uh, providing an avenue for uh, those who trade using Western services uh, to do so. Uh, the only difference is now that you, you, you have to trade under a certain price. And that's, that's I think, the, the fundamental understanding of the price cap which is, as, a, as I said earlier, is a complement to the six sanctions package. Uh, after the price cap is put in place, anyone can trade Russian oil using Western services insofar as it's traded at a certain price. So when we look back a year from now, um, if we're able to maintain stability in energy markets, and if we see a real diminished stability for Russia to continue raising revenue along the lines that it's been doing, then I think we can declare this a success. Uh, ben, that's really critical, and and to it, I think clarifying that point, it's not to stop Russian oil; it's to ensure that when it's traded, it's done at a lower price to reduce the benefits that go to Russia. Um, Liz, if you can take us from the the goal and to the concept of how it would work. Um, obviously, it's on oil. Tell us a little bit more about the services. Um, how would it function? Thanks, Carlos, and thanks also for the opportunity to speak with you um, about this topic. Um, I'm happy to address that, and some of this will reinforce uh, the points that uh, a number of the points that Ben's just made. So, essentially, what we're talking about here is a policy framework that um, establishes a price threshold, and it is for oil. It's also for refined product, and we can come to that uh, in in a uh, uh, in a couple of minutes. But what this does is uh, uh, permit and expressly encourage service providers in G7 and EU countries uh, that uh, are involved in the trade, uh, the maritime trade of Russian oil and product to provide their services uh, uh, if the oil is priced below the cap and they, are, uh, they don't provide it, they're banned from doing so if the oil or product is above the cap. Now, what is the group or who is the group? So the core of this, um, this group, the countries that have that will put into place requirements for the service providers in their jurisdiction, that's the G7 uh, and the EU. So all of those countries, um, there may be, uh, Australia has also uh, joined here and there may be others that come along as that um, establishing this, uh, this framework. Now, as a technical matter, it's framed as a ban from which there is an ability, an exception to sell when it's below the price. So sometimes that can be a little for people who are just uh, new to this kind of compliance framework. But I want to emphasize that what this does is uh, create a system where there's uh, permission, feasibility, encouragement, uh, as Ben was noting, to um, provide services when oil or product is priced below a, a particular cap. As far as some of the, the benefits for this, I want to reinforce something that Ben just said here. Customers who get access to this, uh, this lower priced oil and product are some of the, those who benefit 
And so are service providers in these G7 and EU countries who under this policy framework will be able to continue to provide their services in the market. So as Ben was noting, under the EU6 package, they would not be able to do so, those European service providers, uh, but this will create an opportunity for them to do so. So what's the universe of service providers here? This is, think of this as the full suite of service providers involved in the transport of, uh, or the trade of Russian seaborne oil. Sometimes people think of this just as an insurance ban. It's not, it never has been. It's been misreported that way. But insurance, uh, brokering, financial services, bunkering, sort of the, the suite of services there. Um, one other, a couple of other quick points, which uh, often come up when we're discussing this. Um, it's enacted, these, these uh, requirements, this framework is enacted by the countries, the G7, the EU member states um, that are part of this group. And there's a, it, you, you and um, people listening to this may be aware that there's a significantly high concentration of these service providers within these countries, particularly for insurance and certain financial services too. Um, they will enact it at a national level or for the EU at an EC or EU level. The enforcement occurs on a national level, including for countries within the EU, the enforcement occurs at a national level. Now, the members of this group can share information with one another, but that's, um, that's nevertheless, the enforcement is at a, a national level and the compliance occurs uh, across all of these service providers we've designed, and I can speak more about this later, but we've designed um, with a lot of industry input, uh, a relatively straightforward compliance system here that it rests on uh, the purchaser being able to, uh, they of course know the price of oil, it's below the cap. Service providers attest, uh, uh, gather that uh, attestation from the purchaser or themselves can attest that they are providing services for oil priced below the cap or product price below the cap. That's Liz, a, we'll a br brief sketch. Yeah. yeah, no, it's a it, many complex pieces and uh, you're doing a really good job of bringing them together in a short time. We'll come back to enforcement and compliance. Um, let's stick for a minute in the development of, of the concept. It's still, um, it's still being fleshed out. Um, you've mentioned the G7, the EU. Are there other partners involved in fleshing it out? And what specifically is the role of the United States? Two points to that. First, it's uh, I think at this point, this is fully fleshed out, uh, but we've done that as an internal matter. And now we're pivoting into uh, this group of countries to communicating that. So um, we'll, we're doing that in opportunities such as this one and speaking with members of industry. And uh, in the coming weeks, uh, we'll be in a position, the various countries and jurisdictions to bring forward law, regulation, legislation, which gives full legal specificity to the requirements of this scheme. So yes, the G7, the EU, uh, Australia, um, and uh, there may be uh, some other formal membership. But what I want to emphasize here is that formal membership is not essential in any way for uh, cooperation or participation uh, in this uh, policy scheme. And in fact, major purchasers, some of the biggest purchasers of Russian oil uh, need, need not um, uh, formally uh, join as uh, 
part of this group in order to nevertheless take advantage of it. Uh, and in so doing, they would, uh, with the mere existence of the price, be able to have a lot of leverage to negotiate their own purchase price down much lower uh, in that kind of price environment. So then if you can take this uh, next step in terms of who could import Russian oil in terms of the entities that would be involved, and we'll come back to the role of national governments in that. Sure. And so just picking up where where Liz left off, uh, when it comes to eligibility, the answer is pretty straightforward. Really, anyone can participate. Uh, I, you know, I, would, I would sort of group market participants into three different categories. The first are those that are located in countries uh, or regions that have banned the import of Russian oil. So obviously, you know, if you're a US market participant, you can't participate because the US ban on Russian oil. Um, but all others uh, will have to make a decision about whether or not they want to use G7 services in the trade of Russian oil. And that's the only, the only real eligibility criteria is that you trade under the price. And I think maybe it's helpful to note that there are actually three separate price caps. We'll have one cap for crude, a uh, second cap for high value refined product like diesel, and uh, a third cap on low value refined product like uh, naphtha. Um, but ultimately, who can trade? Anyone can trade. And uh, these consumers and importers of Russian oil just have to make a decision about whether or not they want to use Western services. And if they do, the sole criteria is that it is uh, purchased under a certain price. I think this is an important clarification, which is we have the group that will be effectively implementing this. And that's the G7 plus Australia. Uh, that's the bulk of service providers, as Liz noted. For consumers around the world, it's, you know, now is sort of at a position where uh, it's up to the individual importers. So the, the country, sorry, the, the company um, who chooses to, to purchase the oil to make the decision which of those two groups they want to be in. Do they want to use Western services or not? And, you know, it's really actually not even a company by company decision. It's a trade by trade decision. And so there's a real opportunity uh, for those who want to use Western services to import cheap oil. And for those that don't use Western services, I think our hope is that they can use the existence of the price cap to drive down the price of Russian oil, to have more leverage when they're negotiating the price. And we've seen pretty good evidence that that's happening to date. So, you know, I'm sort of maybe jumping ahead here, but just encouraged by uh, progress we've made so far. So this could be refiners, uh, traders, uh, major oil and gas oil companies that are involved in international trade, all of them could be participants in making these uh, purchases and trading um, Russian oil. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and then Liz mentioned national enforcement. Does that mean that the, the countries in which those importers are participating have to somehow um, uh, uh, lend their support to the program? How, how does the, that combination work where you can have individual entities import, but um, Liz was talking about national enforcement and compliance, and maybe the two of you might want to jump into this together. Maybe if you want to start, Ben. Or, or I can. This one, yeah. yeah. Okay. So if it's, um, it's not necessary uh, 
that, uh, so imagine a, a country, um, uh, let's, let's say a country in Southeast Asia um, that might not as a formal matter join the price cap as a group uh, uh, with um, its own national level legislation that um, uh, implements the ban and, and the exception, if you will. Um, uh, but there are nevertheless refiners in their jurisdiction that want to participate. So it doesn't rest on the enforcement officials in that country that has not signed on enforcing um, uh, any any laws, anyone else's laws there. And, and also bear in mind that importer, they could decide to purchase um, below the price cap and thereby use services provided, um, insurance, trade finance, et cetera, that's in a G7 country. If they do that, then they need to be mindful of compliance and each of those service providers need to make sure they're, they're governed by their own national law um, uh, and they'll need to be sure that they are complying. Um, but if that uh, country in Southeast Asia, that refiner is not using um, uh, any services from the G7, they could choose to purchase, to not participate and to, to purchase at a, at, a higher, um, at a higher price. Uh, that would in probably involve for them less efficiency, greater risk, not having access to the same premium services, uh, but they wouldn't be violating any, um, any of the obligations that those G7 service providers have. So there's no, there's no risk for violation. There would be no need for enforcement at the national level, at anyone's national level, if they're not using those services. But in general, um, if there's a, uh, think about that national level, if the country, if there's an entity in that country that seeks to um, uh, use a G7 service. So when, when you said national enforcement, it's in effect national enforcement on the part of the countries of the service providers that it's their responsibility and the service providers' responsibilities to ensure that they're complying with the rules of the program, um, but it's not the responsibility of national governments of those who are importing. For the, uh, the I would just add as an amendment to that, for the purchaser um, uh, in, again, using this example in Southeast Asia, um, they need to be, uh, they might find themselves exposed to jurisdiction of those service providers if they are, um, uh, if, they, if they lie or make a material misrepresentation as fraud, that, that um, fraud is fraud in their own jurisdiction too. Uh, you're, no consumer is, no purchaser is supposed to lie to their service providers. So that's another opportunity, even aside from the price cap, but which uh, no one is particularly keen to see. Um, I, I want to go into some country reactions, but two other things on implementation before we go that go there. Um, ben, how does the price cap get set? So uh, the price cap, and remember, it's three different price caps, and so we right. have uh, until early December to set the price cap for crude, and then in early February we'll have the two other price caps. But effectively, it's a consultation. You know, the U.S. is starting off as lead coordinator. Uh, there'll be a rotating lead coordinator, but it is a, a consultation among uh, those countries which are in the G7 and um, Australia as well. And it'll be um, it'll be one price per per cap. Uh, it'll be announced in advance. We don't have a precise date when we when we'll an announce a cap, but it needs to be set in enough time to allow the private sector 
to adjust. I mean, I think as, as Liz said earlier, we very much see the private sector and service providers as partners in this. And so all along the way, uh, we have tried to design this, this regime so that it would have as low as compliance burden as possible and, uh, and really just make it as easy as possible on the, on the private sector. And that includes giving advance warning for what the price cap will be. Um, but from the U.S. perspective, there are three data points that we think will help inform what our, our perspective would be on the appropriate level of the price cap. The first is the marginal cost of production. And because, sort of going back to your first question, uh, because our goal is to preserve the flow of, of Russian oil, uh, the price cap will be set above the marginal cost of production. So there's an economic incentive for Russia to continue producing. I think the second data point has to do with our second goal, which is uh, to substantially reduce the revenue received by Russia. So the price cap has to be low enough so that Russia feels that pain. Um, and the third goal is, I think we'll look historically, really pre-war, uh, the pre-war period and in, in the years preceding uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and look at prices that Russia was historically comfortable accepting. And we'll use those three data points to sort of triangulate an opinion that we'll share with our partners in the G7 when we go ahead and, and set that price. And so that, that process of setting the price is still in consultation um, and will get announced um, at some point uh, when the entire package gets rolled out and in full scale. Exactly. So sometime this fall and uh, you know, with plenty of time for the private sector to, to, to adjust to what, um, to what is really a new and novel scheme. Um, Liz, the other question I said we'd come back to was um, compliance. Um, and in some ways, as you've laid out the program, it's, it's not one so much of an enforcement, but creating incentives to join. Um, how is it going to work? And um, Treasury's talked about it, and guidance you've put out has talked about attestations. Can you explain a bit further how that would function? Sure. So it is the case that um, the strongest uh, force or motivator towards uh, compliance is the powerful economic incentive for purchasers to achieve a lower price point um, and also to have access to these premium services. And just a little bit more on that, you know, um, premium services are some of the only services that cover uh, the biggest tankers, for example. Um, so there's a uh, there's an efficiency and a, um, a gain and also a you know a mitigated risk um, incentive to join. One thing that uh, is often confounding to people who have worked on sanctions programs before is that um, to cheat on uh, uh, oil sanctions in Iran or Venezuela cases, for example, means that you get a uh, black market rate at, at a discount, but actually here to uh, evasion in the context of this scheme means paying more uh, for oil acting essentially um, counter to your economic self-interest here. Excuse me. Uh, and here we go. Uh, and so uh, as I was noting that economic incentive here is really driving the greatest force driving compliance. So beyond that, the, the scheme here um, and I noted this was informed with a lot of consultation with industry, including financial services and insurance. The purchaser, um, uh, uh, of course, uh, establishes their price that they will purchase for. And other service providers um, then need to uh, attest that they are uh, dealing with uh, um, a, 
a cargo of crude uh, or product that is below the price. And some of them um, have access to the price and the uh, normal documents that they would deal with um, over the, the course of their general business. Others of them don't have access to that as readily. And so we may see uh, some different kinds of uh, attestation um, uh, uh, and there, each jurisdiction may have a slightly different tweak on what it needs to look like, but essentially they, um, they collect an attestation and they retain it and they can furnish it upon request. They don't need to submit that to any centralized authority. And generally, if those service providers uh, are acting in good faith and conducting normal due diligence, uh, they will not be the target of enforcement here. We're more concerned as an enforcement matter for those service providers or purchasers that are um, uh, truly acting in bad faith, that are committing fraud, that are making material misrepresentations, that are duping others um, in the service chain who are seeking to, uh, to abide by this framework. Um, so it's a, it's a very different approach from a traditionally that traditionally taken to sanctions, as you said. It's one of creating a set of incentives that you benefit if you participate, as opposed to um, the threat of being penalized being the driving mechanism that gets get countries to join. Um, Liz, Ukraine, have you talked about the program with Ukraine? And if so, what have their reactions been? We have, um, and they've been very supportive. Uh, President Zelensky made a statement on September 2nd following the G7 ministerial statement uh, that uh, confirmed the um, intent to, um, uh, to, to move forward with this price cap and uh, with the deadline. And uh, immediately thereafter, Ukraine offered in that highest level of support for it, which is uh, important, I think, to everyone participating in as to have that, um, given that a, a key motivator for many of these members is to deny Russia revenue to fund its war, as well as to achieve the uh, goals Ben was mentioning right at the top, mitigating, uh, making lower uh, uh, priced oil available to purchasers reducing price spikes, downward pressure uh, on, the, on the market, uh, all of which is achieved by keeping Russian oil flowing to the market. So China and India, um, they've been the principal purchasers of Russian oil thus far. They've been purchasing at a discount. Um, for either of you, do you, what sense do you have of whether they will participate? Um, and um, Ben, you might um, want to comment on the discount that will be offered, um, do we have expectations of what that might look like relative to what China and India are getting already? So I'm happy to just sort of comment on the discount part and, and, and Liz can certainly weigh in on China and India's expected response. Uh, I mean, we have been heartened to date by the incredibly steep discounts that Russia has offered. Uh, their posture feels a bit desperate. They have been leading with offers of 30% or potentially more uh, to importers. A year ago, this would have been unheard of. I mean, traditionally, there's a very tight spread between Urals and, and Brent, and, and now it, it's, as, uh, it's as wide as ever. Uh, and so I, I think that as Russia gets increasingly desperate, you'll see the spread continue to widen, which was an express objective of formulating the price cap in the first place. 
And so, um, and, you know, just to say that this is a this is a benefit to uh, China. It's a benefit to India. It's a benefit to all importers of Russian oil, whether they trade specifically under the cap or whether they just take advantage of the cap to uh, negotiate wider spreads. And you know, just to say it, it's also a benefit to really any consumer of oil uh, in the United States if we're able to stabilize energy prices will benefit domestic consumers here. It's really a benefit to everyone but Russia. Um, and so just to directly answer your question, with respect to, to China and India, we don't know how wide the spreads will be. It feels pretty clear that they've been widening since the price cap has been communicated. But as far as specific dollars go, uh, I think time will tell. Liz, do you want to add anything on their participation? Sure. So we uh, we have had the chance to talk to China uh, and India uh, about this, um, as well as um, uh at, at, at the level as a diplomatic matter, and then as a uh, with industry and the um, entities could, uh, that would be refiners, for example, that would be in the in the business of making purchases here. Um, and uh, I think uh, they are quite reasonably very interested. Um, that makes uh, good sense, I think, to us. Um, they're good negotiators, and uh, if there's an opportunity here to drive down purchase price, particularly in a a high price environment in this uh, amidst the inflationary pressures we all face, it's of particular interest. Um, just to, and, and again, we'll, we'll see where they, uh, what to the point Ben was making, where they ultimately land for the specific prices that they achieve, contract prices that they achieve, but it's clear that they're already using the existence of the price cap to, uh, to, to push, push a push apart that spread and to um, have um, the most advantageous prices they can. One thing that people raise to us a lot is the concept that um, uh, China and India will um, uh, just create their own entire suite or other countries too, their entire suite of services uh, where they might have um, 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 a modest suite of services, uh, now they would expand it and create entirely different ones. Um, I think there's economic reasons to think that that will not be the case, that, it, that these countries or others won't just create entirely new insurance sectors, um, uh, financing or payments uh, mechanisms. Uh, there might be some you know, marginal uh, expansion or adaptation uh, there, but uh, what that then means is that they will have an incentive to purchase uh, some, maybe a lot of oil uh, down around the, the cap price in order to have access to existing services that they don't have nationally, but they would want to take advantage of that are uh, domiciled um, within the G7 or EU countries. Uh, and one last point to say, uh, I, I don't think we've seen China or India rush to, to be the bailout for Russia at this point um, when it comes to um, uh, offering to pay premium prices on oil in order to stand by Russia as a political matter. So I think that's, that, that bears watching uh, as we're looking at the, the decisions people make on contracts. We have a little bit less than five minutes to talk about some of the challenges, but these are critical. And, and probably, Ben, let me start with you. The biggest one is 
Russia's reaction and what we expect they will do in response to this proposal. So, you know, it's not entirely out of the question that Russia would react in a retaliatory way, uh, particularly given the recent history uh, that's certainly on the table, but we do know that it is not in their economic or strategic interest to do so uh, for a few reasons. I think the first is remember again, after December 5th, it is not the US and the EU that's the primary purchaser of, of Russian oil. It's, it's not the G7, it's its other partners. It's China and India and some lower income, uh, some low income countries, it's, it's Asia. It's, those are the importers who would be negatively impacted if Russia chooses to shut in uh, in a direct way. The second is Russia's reputation as a credible and reliable uh, supplier of energy is obviously on the floor given the, the rep, given its weaponization of the gas trade. And if it, if it starts turning on and off production out of spite uh, to the G7, I think that its credibility will deteriorate even further. It'll make it very difficult for Russia to sign long-term contracts. Um, and the third is that shutting in substantial production for any appreciable amount of time uh, hurts Russia's ability to produce in the future. Uh, most of its wells are fairly elementary and can't be turned on and turned off. And this is an economy which is in sharp decline and, uh, and you can certainly not afford to lose uh, so much production over a short period of time. So, you know, Russia may get desperate and, and may uh, choose to retaliate, but there are economic and strategic, uh, strategic reasons for it not to. What if there is a retaliation then of something on the order of cutting off Kazakh exports through the Caspian Pipeline Consortium? They could do that since pipeline has to go through Russia and in effect say that any country that wants a discount has to negotiate it directly with Russia on their terms. Is, it a, is that a realistic scenario? I think that there's rather than speaking to a particular uh, retaliation, I'll say that you know, Russia is a major exporter of energy and there's a whole host of strategies it could employ and, and we're, we're making contingency plans for that and we're studying what it could potentially do. So uh, not only are we at, at the moment designing this price cap, but we're also planning for contingencies as well. Liz, uh, let me ask if there are other risks that you see that could potentially affect resilience. Uh, including any observations that you might have on the Middle East since you are, in addition to your current job, uh, quite a Middle East expert as well. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I think one, uh, call it risk, call it challenge, uh, we have, uh, or you know, that's um, uh, associated with this policy is um, making sure it's uh, understood actually uh, very broadly. and. Um, it's uh, for reasons we've we've already covered in this conversation so far. Uh, it's unlike uh, previous policies from the G7 with regard to energy markets. Um, it's unlike sanctions uh, that we put in place before for oil markets. And actually, we have found sometimes for people who are deep, who are true experts with deep expertise on sanctions or on. Um, uh, or other market dynamics. Actually, this is it's challenging to 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 set aside some of our uh, prior understanding or assumptions about how things work in order to 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 frame out what we're talking about here. So it's particularly important for us to spend time to, uh, talking to people in industry 
Um, but uh, we are seeing um, uh, plenty of market participants uh, who are not only understanding this, but putting it to work. And so some of those first movers are already out there negotiating contracts uh, with the price cap in mind uh, to achieve these discounts. So it never it's a big industry. There's lots of different industries actually associated with the maritime transport of Russian oil. Uh, so it's a, a big job to make sure everyone um, understands it uh, and can see it demonstrated. Uh, with regard to um, the Middle East or other major producers, I think another important challenge for the, this price cap group uh, is to make sure there's good communication. You know, a, a price, our baseline scenario where Ben started with the sixth package here, if that were on its own, and, and that is law, so that that's uh, it's not a hypothetical. That's that's the law that that we're moving towards. All of us are moving towards for December fifth. If that were to come into place and there was the kind of price spike uh, that um, uh, some plenty of analysts have looked at and been concerned about resulting from that, those spikes, uh, that kind of instability in pricing is not good for anyone. Big producers, of course, uh, don't find great comfort in instability, and no one likes the look of uh, a major uh, of, a, of a recession, a greater recessionary potential. That's not great for any kind of for producers broadly. So that's uh, that's something that is important for us to to focus on with big producers. And lastly, I will just say, this is a bespoke policy. It's specific for the. Uh, the situation in Ukraine, so Russia's invasion of Ukraine. This is not something that um, the the architects and, and developers of this policy seek to replicate and extend in other circumstances. I think that's important for global producers to, to bear in mind. Liz, uh, do you mind to close this out on uh, next steps and what, what to expect and potentially when? Sure. Right now, there's two different uh, sets of uh, activities ongoing uh, uh, that will bring us towards uh, launch date on December 5th. One is the implementation of um, legal, um, legal requirements in the jurisdictions that are part of this group here. So what this looks like is um, regulation or legislation, it's a little different depending on the jurisdiction, um, uh, and that will come forward in the next several weeks. Uh, so in the United States, we'll put forward our own um, uh, directive with frequently asked questions and guidance. Other jurisdictions of this broader coalition will do the same. That's ongoing there. A second other uh, set of activities has to do with setting the price. Ben gave a little bit of information there, but the group of countries here um, is uh, launching into consultations to ultimately arrive upon a specific price and that'll be made public. So. Uh, in the coming weeks, we'll have a situation where service providers or purchasers will understand the legal framework, that is to say the requirements for how to participate um, or take advantage of this uh, 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 policy framework, and then the specific price, which is, of course, so significant when it comes to the actual contracts and the actual deals that get done. December 5th is the go-live date, uh, and uh, for crude, Refined product follows on to that. That's uh, per the uh, original framework of the EU, which established that in its six package.
Liz, thanks very much on that. Um, it's striking what you have laid out. It's it's something very different. The world, I don't know if we've seen something quite like this before. It's not a sanction. In a sense, it's almost a market detour that's been created for public policy purposes um, related to the war in Ukraine and situation of Russian revenues. It's also um, very much focused on consumers. Um, what consumers will pay for the price of oil globally and for refined products and the impact that that has on economic growth. Um, and so in that sense, it's quite extraordinary. Um, we'll all be on the lookout for the rollout of um, regulations or legislation from companies uh, for countries as they as it comes in the coming weeks. Um, and in particular, we'll, we'll see and we'll watch closely for how the private sector can be involved, because I think one of the things that's quite interesting about the program is not to shut down private activity, but to create a new set of rules where the private sector, private traders, private companies, private service providers can provide an environment which is um, still allows them to continue to play the roles that they've played in the functioning of the oil market. And yet to do that free of the threat of sanctions while meeting a public policy goal. So it's an extraordinary, extraordinary set of goals and measures and a design that we've never quite seen before. Liz, Ben, thanks very much for taking the time to explain it, um, your patience in developing it, and we'll look forward to hearing from you in the months to come as it gets rolled out. Thank you. Thanks so much.